Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron. And I'm Rustin. Every two weeks, Rustin and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. Exactly. And this time around, we have chosen to discuss fall, yeah? Yeah, fall. Fall season, things relating to the fall. There's a lot going on. Lots of scenery. Relating to the fall or just fall? The fall. Maybe one specific one. Who knows? I'm, there's probably been some memorable ones out there. Right, right, right. But saying the fall makes it sound like you're talking about a specific one, like the fall of Troy. Was that not a memorable fall? It absolutely was, but that wasn't necessarily what I had in mind when I suggested this topic. Yeah. So uh, anyways, today I'm going to be talking about the collapse of Constantinople, a topic known for its great relation to ecology, natural history, and evolution. Well... I mean, it is natural history in that it is history that occurred naturally, but not necessarily the kind we like to talk about now. Now, I picked a different topic today. All right. So what is your actual natural history topic? All right. I'll see if you can guess it. I decided to pick an animal that has unfortunately become a very common sight during the fall season in large portions of northeastern United States. Any ideas? Yes. It's a invasive sap-sucking bug. Yep, I know exactly where you're going with this. Yep, spotted lanternfly. Yeah, there it is. Yep, so a lot of you might be familiar with this. I've seen they've definitely been a lot more prevalent on social media in the past couple years. I'm going to be doing kind of an overview of them. In this piece, I'm going to cover what they are, how they got here, their effects on forests in the United States, and how they can be managed. Okay. Sounds very encompassing. Yep. So first up, what is a lanternfly? Lanternflies are an insect, so six legs and an exoskeleton, and they're in the order Hemiptera. This order is known as tr true bugs family. So technically, if it's called a bug and it's not in this order then it's factually incorrect. But then again, these are called flies. So I don't think common names really matter. Those are the fake bugs, right? Those are the fake bugs, the wannabes. Right. They haven't made it yet. They need to get the status of bug. If you want to know if something's a true bug or not, all true bugs have a straw-like mouth part, which they use. Most of them feed off of plants, and they stick it in and suck the fluids. But there are quite a few predators as well. Gotcha. So all bugs have a straw. All bugs have a straw. Yes. Does it matter what kind of straw or just a straw? Uh, some do different things. There's a big range of them. Stink bugs, true bug. Cicadas, assassin bugs, also true bug. So they use their straws for different things. So you're saying that if I had a hard exoskeleton, two more limbs, and went to McDonald's and stole a straw, I would technically be a true bug? Can't argue with that. Your logic sound. All right. Well, now I know what I'm doing with mine next week. Yeah. Something everyone should I'm, strive to. I'm going to grow my exoskeleton. So spotted lanternflies are in the family Fulgoridae. This family consists of many large and brightly colored insects, and they're all known for feeding on tree sap. Many of the insects in this family have large, ornate structures on their heads. At one point, it was thought that these could glow. They don't. 
but the name Lanternfly stuck regardless. That That's the origin. <laughs> Wait, why did we think that they glowed? I don't know. I guess they were of the mind. If it looks weird, it must do something weird. So why not glow? In an alternate timeline, maybe they thought that they could blow and make a horn-like noise, and these are called trumpet flies. So their scientific name is Lychroma delicatula. The like prefix means lamp, and delicatula roughly means luxurious. So this is technically the luxurious lamp bug. That is a misnomer if I've ever heard one, because based on what I know about these bugs, they're neither luxurious, and you just said that they don't have lanterns, so their entire name is a lie kind of pretty if you've ever seen one they're large and gray and they got black polka dot wings but underneath they do have a bright red set of inner wings so there's some colors to them yeah they kind of look like a a fly cross with an ashy dalmatian it's not really that appealing to me (laughs) you're forgetting the bright red eyes everyone loves that oh because that makes something more appealing so the spot lantern flies are from asia specifically parts of Vietnam and China. However, they become invasive in the Northeast United States, along with Japan and Korea as well. Like a lot of invasive insects, this was not on purpose. The eggs of the lanternflies are just easily transported on plants, but also just inanimate structures as well. They'll kind of stick their eggs to anything. So it could be the side of a house, shed, could be firewood, could be plants, hay, etc., all right, but could we just circle back to the fact that this was not on purpose? The vast majority of invasive species are here like by some kind of accident. Yes, I just want to reiterate the point that it's no one's fault that they're here. I don't want someone to go hunt down some poor dock worker thinking that he brought them here intentionally just because they were stuck to a pallet. It was actually this weird like lover of Shakespeare who read a poem that Shakespeare wrote about lantern flies and decided that lantern flies had to be in the United so States. So he let them all go. And for those who are unaware, that did happen with the starling. And maybe other birds. I don't know what else he released. As far as I know, it was just the starlings. At least the starlings were the only ones that took. But still, absolute moron. I'm sorry. This was not the case. This is very much an accent how they got here. The first sighting of a lantern fly was back in 2014 in Berks County, Pennsylvania. And I will give credit to the state. I think they did a very good job attempting to limit transport of materials to reduce the spread. So they had a lot of checkpoints, a lot of inspections, especially with lumber, because the eggs can stick onto that and blend in really well. But lanternflies can fly. And one study found that they can migrate up to three or four miles. So even if you greatly control transportation of goods, it's really going to be hard to stop the spread. And of course, they did. Props for trying. Controlling invasive species just generally seems to be like trying to keep urine contained in one corner of a pool. It's just going to kind of drift everywhere, no matter what you do. That's why the most important thing to do is a monitoring system. Hence the blue dye we put in the pool that reacts with the urine. (laughs) You might not be able to stop the spread, but at least you know who the pool peer is. True. (laughs) True, and you and you know how far it's spread, yeah. too. <laughs> you can watch it happen in real time. Yeah, that uh, turns out it was a mistake to try to paint my shorts blue that one time I got into a pool. Everyone got really, really weirded out by me for some reason. I wasn't sure why. So I was just walking around with packets of blue Kool-Aid in my trunks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, 
So like the urine in a pool, the lanternflies have spread to 16 different states across the East Coast, with reported dead specimens being found in some Western states as well. There's even been some reports as far as California, unconfirmed though. So they have spread very far and very fast. In 2019, it was estimated that the lanternflies cost $99 million in agricultural damage and $236 million in damage to the forestry industry, just the state of Pennsylvania alone. And you said that was just in one year? That was just in one year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's not good. No, not at all. That's quite significant. So, how do the lanternflies damage crops? Uh, I mentioned earlier, lanternflies don't physically eat the trees. They drink the sap. They're more like tree mosquitoes. Right. So as <laughs> I'm going to cut this out, I, I had a really bad typo. <laughs> I called them lantern loos. <laughs> 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 uh, maybe that's a word. I don't know. I ran it through a really intensive spell check. So as the lanternflies drink the sap, they can introduce several problems. For starters, this process weakens the tree and inhibits growth. The sap is kind of like their version of a circulatory system. It transports the sugar, water, nutrients, etc. So a few lanternflies aren't that bad, but in high numbers, and they do tend to congregate in high numbers, they can cause damage to the trees. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, they don't need all the sap, but they need most of it. Now, as they're feeding, the lanternflies excrete pretty much just sugar sugar goes in sugar comes out that's about all they're eating and this is known as honeydew it comes out in a highly sugary sludge the sugary sludge can cause a lot of molds to grow around the tree it can also attract noxious stinging insects like bees wasps and ants they will come in to drink the sugary secretion after them wow so lanternflies are unique in that their shit really doesn't stink no, it's it's quite sweet, actually. Remarkable. In fact, I I didn't know where to put this. Might as well bring it up now. Bees are drinking the poop and making honey from it, and I heard it's giving the honey a distinct, almost oaky taste. I was starting to wonder why my honey tasted like bourbon. No, a bit of a bourbony aftertaste. Um, that could be cool. Not gonna lie, I see a market for that. Sure, sure. I mean, as long as the lantern flies around, we might as well get something out of it. Life gives you lemons. You make oaky honey. You make oaky honey. If you look at a tree with a lot of lanternflies around it, you can sometimes see it looks like a wet coating all around the base of the tree. That's actually just their poop. It can coat the entire surrounding. Gross. Lanternflies feeding on the trees can lead to issues in development and a weakened immune system, and that can cause the tree to be more susceptible to disease and other parasites. But the lanternflies themselves do not kill the trees. It's very much the effects of them feeding on the tree. Okay, so again, we circle back to the Jared Leto Joker. They're not going to kill the tree. They're just going to hurt it really, really bad. Well, it's not them that's hurting it. It's the effects of their feeding. One thing I read is that... Of course, when lanternflies feed, a lot of mold tends to be introduced because of all that sugary secretion. Now, if this is just in your yard, it's just something unsightly. Maybe you're, you got bad allergies to it. But in the terms of the fruit industry, the issue is that mold can render all your fruits unsellable on that tree. Right, right, right. But it's kind of like how when people have AIDS... 
technically they don't kill by AIDS, but they wouldn't have been, you know, taken out by a common cold if they didn't have AIDS. So I feel like the the real problem here is is the lantern flies, not necessarily the after effects of the lantern flies. No, it's very much the after effects of the lantern flies because if you had put little diapers on every single lantern fly, I don't think this would be an issue. Alternatively, if they were potty trained, I think we would avoid this issue altogether. So, yes, I do think it's an after effect. Okay. But also, no, because no one's going to potty train the lantern flies and no one makes lantern fly diapers, Aaron. If your primary counter argument involves treating lantern flies like toddlers and or five year olds, then I'm sorry. I think you've lost the argument and your argument is ridiculous. Well, hey, they might be here to stay. So. So you, you think we should start manufacturing these lantern fly depends? The the lantern lose, if you will. <laughs> the lantern lose. Worst ideas have been put forward. It's better than carpet bombing pesticides. Sure, sure. Hey EPA, lantern lose. Look into it. You heard it here first, folks. So a big issue with the lantern flies is not necessarily that they're killing the trees but it can be really bad for the agricultural industry, which, of course, is very much a backbone in the U.S. economy. Right. It's a backbone in many different economies. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like the issue of the flies targets the forest themselves. Again, it's the forestry industry. In the wild, I don't think they have as much of these issues. But then again, a lot of the monitoring for the lanternflies is in crop fields because that's where there's an incentive to study right so maybe there's a bias there to study their effects on crops more so than natural forests okay yeah that makes sense anyways so lantern flies tend to target specific trees as well and these are usually trees with a higher sugar content in the sap actually they don't target that many plants Some estimates only have about 70 species. I've seen some that are higher, maybe 100 plus, but, you know, that's really not that many plants. So are they targeting just like how diverse are the is this group of 70 plants? Is it just trees or is it trees, shrubs, bushes, trees, shrubs and bushes mainly? Uh, I believe when they're smaller, they might go for maybe some smaller grasses, but it's all very shrubby. So this group can include willows, maples, stony fruits like pears, cherries, grapevines, apples, and more. Hmm. Okay. The ornamental impact of the lanternflies is not too disastrous. I mean, it's a bit unsightly and having your tree, you know, looking a little wilty isn't great. But like I said, farmlands is where they tend to hit the hardest. This can severely decrease production in crops, and most studies have found that grapevines tend to be one of the biggest ones. So uh, I want to keep it away from California. That wine industry does not need these. Oh boy, that's, that's a disaster waiting to happen then. So like I said, lanternflies only have the 70-sub tree species that are known to feed off of, but a lot of these is with very diminished efficiency. They might be noted to feed on it, but not in high numbers. It's not a preference. Hmm. So it's really only a few agricultural trees slash vines that the lanternflies have really bad effects on. Gotcha. So one issue is 
why are there so many? Why hasn't everything eaten them? Lanternflies can't bite. They're pretty clumsy. They don't fly or jump very well. You know, why aren't they being eaten by all these other animals? Are they poisonous? So this isn't fully known, but it's a strong theory that I've read. One of the main theories is that they taste bad. Not that they're poisonous, but they're very bitter. Because lanternflies, most preferred host species, is the tree of heaven. This tree is found in their native range and is what they're almost entirely associated with. Unfortunately, the tree of heaven is also incredibly invasive in the United States. Um... So this tree produces alephone, and this is a bitter tasting compound that the lanternflies may be utilizing to deter predators. It's thought that the bright red underwings tend to work as a warning signal. Any potential predators that they taste bad. One study I read found that the lanternflies tend to feed on Tree of Heavens more as they begin to develop the red pigmentation. So there's a behavioral linkage that they seek out this tree as soon as they start developing the pigment. Wouldn't it make more sense to start seeking out the tree before they get that pigment? Like as soon as they, so that way when they have the pigment, they already have acquired the bitter flavor. Maybe. I don't know. But uh, it could also be when they're younger that it is more difficult for them to feed on the tree because they're significantly smaller. Maybe they need to feed on plant with thinner bark. I don't know. Maybe they just feed on smaller trees of heaven. Yeah, just little guys, little saplings. That's a great question. And there's still a lot of research on this. And I couldn't really find the concrete answer. It definitely feels like something that's still being considered. Huh. So this relates to fall insofar as the lanternflies are destroying all of our crops and our harvest. This relates to fall because the fall is when lanternflies are fully grown. And some people think they just appear... No, they just start out real tiny, and by the time the fall rolls around, they are everywhere. I can personally attest to this, because I live in a very agricultural region. I see them everywhere. Every time I'm crossing the road and I see when I give them a stomp, and I can say the maple tree in my yard, covered with them. We'll go out and take a branch to it and try and sweep them all off. Doesn't work. And if I walk through the orchard, I don't see them on the apple trees very often. I do see them on the walnuts, and I see them on the trees of heaven, which do grow around the edges. Okay. So much so, I've even seen the orchard just burning the trees. There are scorch marks at the base of the trees. I think they're taking a propane torch to them. Whoa. Whoa, okay. And I wonder if that's an effective strategy to manage them. If you want to keep them away from the trees you like, you just sort of put a bait tree out there. Huh. Literal scorched earth. All right. Personally, I can attest that the area I live in is a little more suburban. And so we don't quite have the same agricultural presence. So there aren't as many lanternflies. That being said, I do give them a stomp whenever I see them. One time I saw one crawling along the side of my car and I didn't have have anything to squish it with. So I just squished it with my hand and left the lanternfly guts on my car. And uh, there haven't been any other lanternflies on my car since. So I think they learned the lesson. (laughs) They sent a message. Yes. Put their head on a little spike. Right. The gore of their fellow has deterred them from approaching my car again. So I recommend that. And we don't know that it doesn't work yet. You know what? That could be an effective method. Who knows? Send that one to the EPA. 
<laughs> Put it up there with the diapers. <laughs> right. Lantern, lose, and guts. That's how we're going to solve this problem. So uh, I do have to mention that lanternflies still have many predators in their native range. And even in their introduced range, they still have predators here as well. Okay. But it does seem that there is an aversion to them. It's definitely still being studied. So maybe that's completely wrong. Maybe they're doing something else. But it seems to be a theory, a big one. I know they have predators this area because whenever I'm fishing on a river, if one falls in a river, it gets eaten like that. I did read that the bitter tasting compound mainly affected birds. That tracks. Yep. So maybe that was one of their big predators. I mean, I've seen spiders and mantids eat them. As long as something is. Anyways, so I think this brings us to the last part. What to do about the lanternflies? How can we manage them? I read through a lot. There is a massive disconnect from the more proper research, like Google Scholar, or I found some nice articles from Penn State, and the DIY guides that you see on like home garden websites. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, a lot of people aren't even aware that they can't bite. Oh, okay. So I think the most important thing to do right now is research and education. That is one of the the more disappointing aspects of the environmental movement for me is that in, in a lot of cases, we can't really start enacting actual meaningful steps toward controlling invasive species or other ecological crises until people know more about them. What's promising is that when people do know about them, the progress can be significant. The fact that people don't know about them initially is problematic. Like the fact that education has to be the first step. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like uh, in, in a lot of these cases, you feel like people should in, should already know about some of this stuff. Yeah. So I will say lanternflies really haven't been here that long, only about 10 years. So I think there's a lot to learn about their impacts. I mean, some of the data that's coming forward is definitely not good. But I think there's still even just about their biology in general. Understanding how the lanternflies work is what you need to know how to stop them how to control them and manage them. Gotcha. I will say right now, there are definitely good efforts for it, especially in Pennsylvania. Every time I've been up there, I'm pretty sure I've seen at least one sign on a hiking trail saying, this is a lanternfly, stomp on it. Probably not the most effective means of managing just everyone going out and stomping on one, but it's getting awareness out, and that is very good. Right. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying awareness is not important. People should absolutely be aware of these problems 100%. Yeah. A lot of researchers encourage people to take photos of lanternflies and upload them to a public database. Something like iNaturalist could be very useful in tracking their spread, especially as they start to enter new territories. I think another aspect to teach people is how they develop. So lanternflies do not undergo a complete metamorphosis like a caterpillar would as it turns into a butterfly they go through nymphs nymphal stages are basically a tiny adult with no wings however they don't look like the adults at all they're black with white polka dots right right so if your average person saw one all over their tree they might not know what they are Heck, I didn't know what they were. I saw one when I was outside and actually sent you a picture of it because I was like, oh, this looks kind of weird. Aaron might want to see a picture of it. And you were like, oh, yeah, that's a baby lanternfly. And I didn't know what it was. 
it's a big issue. When the fall is when we notice them because they're huge and they're covering our trees. When they're smaller on the trees, you don't really notice them. That's why people think they just appear or maybe they migrate or come out of the ground like cicadas. Right. So wait, each lanternfly lives about a year then? It's roughly a yearly cycle. I think in warmer climates, the adults can live past winter. In the northeastern part of the United States and in colder regions, the eggs overwinter and the adults die when it gets cold. Mm, Okay. Another important aspect of their research is their relationship with the tree of heaven. So I already said there's a potential that they're sequestering bitter tasting compounds from it. And the tree of heaven is highly invasive in the United States. It was once a popular as an ornamental tree, but now it competes with our natives. Well, studies show that lanternflies strongly prefer these trees as their hosts. They don't need them, but their success is heavily intertwined with them. I think I know what we should do here. Let them fight. Let, no, I, that, Let that's, them not, fight. that's not the takeaway. No, we, we should manage the tree of heaven okay. because the lanternflies rely on them so much. Like I said, they don't fully need them, but their success is highly intertwined. So if we are able to manage these trees, then maybe we can also cripple the lanternflies. It's still being studied. And I also have to say that controlling this tree is not an easy task. I mean, it's a very invasive tree for a reason. It's known for having extremely deep roots and spreading and producing many shoots very easily. So you're basically recommending that we control the spread of urine in the pool by controlling the spread of small children who aren't potty trained in the pool. Yes. (laughs) Easier said than done, but it could help. At the very least, if you have a tree of heaven in your front yard, maybe stop and reconsider if you really want it there. Okay. Odds are, if it's small, I think it looks very similar to sumac, which is a nice native species for a lot of the northeastern United States. True. Why not just Give it a replacement. Yeah, fair point. And besides that, there's some success in sticky traps. I've seen injecting high-risk trees with compounds that kill the lanternflies, so basically poisoning the sap on trees that they tend to prefer. There's some research in parasitoid wasps that will specifically target the lanternflies, but this has a lot to go through because you want to make sure that these wasps don't become an invasive species on their own. Oh, yeah. We've seen that happen several times over. Yes. Absolutely. Great example is the cane toads in Australia. They had an issue with a beetle eating their crops. They brought the cane toads. Lo and behold, the cane toads really didn't care about the beetles. They'd rather just eat everything else. Yep. So with that, when I did my research, I kind of found two things. One, I already said this, it's relatively early. They weren't discovered until 2014. It's really not that long a period to research them in the grand scheme of things. I think there's a lot more to be done. And I do think there's a lot of people working on it. I am excited to see. I think in just five years time, we'll have a much better understanding of lanternflies. We may consider doing an update eventually maybe, on the lanternflies. Maybe. I would love to do an update. And uh, the other thing is, I do think a lot of news sites tend to sensationalize lanternflies. I wouldn't call it fear mongering, but they use terminologies that seem to make people want to invest a lot of time and money and just applying pesticides everywhere. Right. Well, they kind of did the same thing around the mor- the murder hornets. That's exactly what I was going to say. To the point where the murder hornets were taking headlines away from COVID-19. 
Now, I'm not saying the murder hornets are good. I'm saying that COVID-19 was far worse and far more relevant to our day-to-day lives. To my knowledge, I haven't followed up in a while, but the murder hornets were literally only located in a single point of Washington state, and they only found dead ones and evidence of them attacking a beehive. That was it. So the murder hornet thing, is that was really blown out of proportion. Lanternflies are definitely here, and they do have bad effects. But calling them like destructo monsters is not going to help people understand things. It's it's going to make them panic, and that's much worse. Right, especially when all we need to do to curb their effects is create lantern lose. <laughs> that's it. That's all we really need to do. Stop the pooping. Stop the pooping. Yeah, and I also have to say, I've seen a lot of home remedies and techniques to manage the lanternflies that, upon more scrutiny, don't really seem to work. So a lot of misinformation there. Okay. And uh, that's about my piece. I I thought this would be a lot easier to do. And the more I looked through it, the more I realized this was a much bigger piece than I realized. Gotcha. I think there's a lot of moving parts here. I try to sum it up as best as I can, but I encourage everyone to go and do more thorough research on the lanternflies because they are very interesting. Yeah, and it's it definitely seemed like throughout that piece there were a lot of individual aspects that you wanted to say more about, but had to kind of skim over to get to the other things. Yeah, if I were to go back in time, I would do it entirely on their relationship with the Tree of Heaven. I wish I read more on that, but I didn't even know about it until halfway through my research. Hmm. Which is, again, it's important that people should learn about them. I didn't know about it. That was all news to me. I didn't even know Tree of Heaven was invasive. I've seen it grown around. I thought it was native. Yeah, there are a lot of species like that. We just see all the time. We assume that they're native, they're native, but they come from somewhere else originally. All right, cool. Cool. Yeah, a lot of stuff in there about lanternflies that I definitely didn't know about. Like, I knew how they feed, how they fed, and why they were harmful, but I didn't know that... Didn't know about the Tree of Heaven thing and didn't specifically know about their pooping being harmful. All right. What do you have for me? All right. So when I was thinking about a fall topic, the thing that immediately came to mind, of course, about the season is falling leaves from deciduous trees. You know, they come down at this time of year and they cover everything around them. And seeing those leaves fall off the trees is kind of how you know that we'll soon be bombarded by pumpkin spice. We as terrestrial beings tend to focus on how those leaves impact our yards and life on land, but those leaves are also hugely impactful in other environments, too. Oh, okay. I think you see where I'm going with this. I I know exactly where you're going with this. One such example of this are the rivers and streams that are around us, which rely heavily upon the falling plant matter as the basis for their food webs, really. Because, at least in the headwaters of a lot of these rivers, there aren't a lot of nutrients to support that ecosystem. So they have to, it has to come from somewhere and these headwaters are surrounded by trees. And so the falling leaves provide those nutrients. Most of these organisms in these headwater streams are macroinvertebrates that can fall into one of four main categories. So there are the shredders, which break down the leaves and also hate Ninja Turtles. I was just going to make that joke. <laughs> I beat you to it. Then there are the grazers which feed upon the algae and bacteria that grows on the leaves. Then there are the collectors, 
which are kind of like the lazy uncle of the streams because they just kind of sit there and collect the edible debris that flows past in the stream. And then there are the predators, which kind of eat everything else. So there are fascinating organisms in all of these categories as I, and I, that I discovered when I was doing this research. But today I want to focus on just one order in the shredder category, or at least most of the members are in the shredder category. That order is Trichoptera. Oh, yes, I know these. Otherwise known as the caddis flies. Yes, very fun, guys. Absolutely. So, a bit of background and a kind of an overview of their life cycle. First off, though, an important note. We say it a lot on this show, but for every rule of nature, there is an exception. Caddis flies are no exception to that rule, which is to say that a lot of this piece is going to be based upon generalizations of caddis flies. This group is highly diverse with members that live in a variety of environments and feed on a lot of different types of food and even look very, very different from one another. So, I mean, there's even a species of caddis fly that, that is completely terrestrial, does not live in the water at all during any part of its life cycle. So this is a, a really diverse group, and I'm going to be generalizing a lot during this piece. Oh, yes. They are incredibly diverse. I took a aquatic entomology course, and part of that was IDing various insects you gather. I deliberately avoided caddisflies as much as I could, just because the key them out was a nightmare. Oh, yeah, it's it's a real pain. Absolutely. But again, in general, caddisflies are like many other invertebrate species in that they have multiple life stages. And for caddisflies, they tend to look very different from one another. Like you talked about how the lanternflies go from nymphs to adults. The caddisflies go from larvae to their adult stage, and those two look nothing alike. Mm -hmm. This kind of seems commonplace to us because we're kind of used to butterflies and moths and those sorts of things undergoing this sort of life change. But when you put it in a human perspective, it's really wild because young humans kind of look like just smaller versions of older humans, you know? You don't have to guess what species it is, you know, like it's just a small human. It's going to grow up to look like a bigger human. With these caddisflies, we have no idea. In a lot of cases, we know we find an adult species, uh, an adult of one species, and it takes years to pair it with the larval stage because we just don't see the larvae grow up into the adult. Exactly. That's just like what I mentioned back in the oh, was it extremophile episode with the flies. Yes. Same thing with a lot of any insect that undergoes a complete metamorphosis. It can be really hard to match them. Precisely. For caddisflies themselves, as adults, they kind of look like weird moths. Again, in general, many of them have long antenna uh, and lots of hair on their bodies. However, like many other similar invertebrates which undergo metamorphosis, the adult portion of their life is relatively short. It's mainly just for the purpose of mating and laying eggs and then they're done. Most adult caddisflies uh, live about a month or so. It's not very long at all. But it is as larvae that caddisflies will shred leaves and play an integral role in, the in, uh, in aquatic ecosystems throughout the world. The caddisflies can live for a few months or years as larvae, depending on the species. During this time, those that live in headwaters of rivers will often help break down leaves in passing streams, as I alluded to earlier. They can also collect passing organic matter using these silk nets or even hunt other invertebrates in the stream. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of caddisflies will fall into any number of those different categories, depending on the species. However, 
at least in my opinion, what is perhaps most remarkable about their larval stage, and arguably about caddisflies in general, is that they will construct casings for themselves out of debris around them and weave it into a kind of cocoon. This is like the most recognizable aspect of this group for a lot of people. Again, exceptions to the rule. Not all caddisflies make these kind of cocoons or cases as they're often called, but the majority do. And these case makers fall into one of three different categories. You got category and categories here. Oh, absolutely. That's a lot of what scientists do, I've come to realize, is they just kind of categorize things mm-hmm. and come up with groups and ways of naming things. So the first group are the fixed retreat makers. These are the least mobile group. They have a lot of lazy uncles just kind of sit there doing nothing. For these guys, the case is more of a shelter. Often it's fixed in place. It doesn't move with the caddisfly larvae as it does with other species. From this shelter, the caddisfly larvae will spin nets of silk into the water to capture bits of passing organic matter upon which it can feed. Oftentimes, the shelter itself is the net rather than the anchor for the net. So again, it depends on the species, but a lot of them use the same kind of general strategy of sitting in one place and then weaving these nets that it will collect food for them. One family, the Phyllopotamids, are so adept at this that they can produce 70 individual strands of silk simultaneously. Just kind of spray it all out at once. It's yeah. like a web shooter right there. I wanted to let that sink in. 70 individual strands at the same time. That is ridiculously impressive. And this ability allows them to create nets whose holes are only a few microns in diameter. For those who don't know, a micron is a millionth of a meter or a thousandth of a millimeter. Very, very small. And this remarkably fine net allows them to capture tiny particles that other species miss. So they kind of occupy their own niche based on this incredible silk spinning ability. In any case, as for this group as a whole, I kind of like to think of them as aquatic spiders. Pretty good comparison in my mind. Minus the eating other bugs. Right, right. It's like it's like if the spiders just kind of fed on seeds and dust that was blowing in the wind. That's all we are. Yeah, you'd have your fixed retreat caddisfly larvae. So, group number two are the portable case makers. So, instead of building a house, these guys kind of built an RV. So, they're taking their home with them wherever they go. They're not tied down to one spot. They kind of like to live on the open road, but they still need their shell. So, they build it out of the debris around them and use the silk that they produce not to make nets, but rather as a kind of cement or mortar to hold the whole thing together. This group has a very diverse mix of feeding strategies from collectors to scrapers to shredders because the larvae can move around. So some of them will stay in place and collect things. Others will shred leaves and others will still scrape the bacteria and algae off the leaves. Depends on the species. However, they all have a portable shell they construct and maintain during their larval stage. Purpose of the shell is actually still up for debate. It likely varies from species to species in reality. But one hypothesis and the thing that most people probably think of when they see the shell is that it's for defense, right? Not unlike um, a, a turtle or a crab. And this kind of seems obvious. 
There are a lot of other examples of these kinds of defenses in nature that organisms are either born with or construct them for themselves to protect themselves from predators. But the second one, I think, is just as likely. They just and- look really cool. <laughs> I like it. The other day I saw one go by, he had a tiny little feather up front, and I thought, that guy's cool. I want to sit next to him. <laughs> he sounds kind of itchy if he's got a feather right next to him. You know, no, it's a cool feather. Out. Stuck in his hat. I mean, sure, that's very jaunty, but if you get too close, it's going to get itchy. You know, you don't want that feather scratching you. I mentioned I had glitter on the sides. Oh, well, that changes everything. <laughs> that is fabulous. Anyway, the second hypothesis about the caddisfly case is that it helps them breathe. So you can try this at home by putting a Walmart bag of <laughs> No, no, <laughs> do not try. We would like to go on record saying that you should not try that at home. No, don't do that. It was a joke. Anyway, so this case, not made out of plastic Walmart bags, helps the caddisflies breathe because it allows the caddisflies to pass water over their gills at will and help them take in more oxygen that way. So... They kind of use this little siphon-like uh, thing at their in their abdomen to push water out, and the case helps the water move over their gills throughout their body. So that way they can breathe in a similar way to us, you know, at will, in other words. Whereas if they were absent the case, then they would kind of just be relying on water to move naturally over their gills. So it gives them a certain element of control. This hypothesis would actually explain why caddisflies can live in lower oxygen environments than many similar species, like stoneflies or mayflies. Those larvae can't live in the same kind of oxygen-lacking environments that caddisflies occupy. So there is a lot of credibility to the breathing hypothesis, at least in my view. I think it very well could be both, because I know that there's some caddisflies that use rocks and pebbles. Correct. That seems kind of dirty. And there's others that use leaves, and that doesn't seem at all. Right, right. So there are a few things to consider there. One is that the caddisflies oftentimes will just use what's around them. So sometimes there are leaves, sometimes there are rocks available. And, you know, leaf protection is better than no protection. Still not great. That's true. You got to be there. Right. And then the other part of it, too, is that uh, the substrate upon which the caddisflies sit will also determine what they make their casing out of as well because if they're in a very muddy substrate they don't want to have a heavy shell that's going to limit their mobility whereas if they're on a sandy substrate or a gravel substrate then that hard shell isn't going to cause them to sink into the substrate so it's going to offer more protection and so that's what they're going to make it out of and again it depends i remember in the guide there were some that always made their case in a specific pattern or shape there's one that would do it or is a genus they would always do it kind of, or maybe as a family. There's one group that always did it like a snail shell, so mm-hmm. spirally. One made it like a turtle, and there'd be some that would just say case varies, and that really sucks because the case is the easiest way to tell them apart. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many different types of caddisfly cases, and they're all really, really cool. But regardless of the purpose of the shell, it's become something of a point of intrigue for humans because people actually make jewelry out of caddisfly casings. So their actual companies 
that will put caddisfly larvae in little pools with lots of shiny material and let the caddisflies make their own casings. And then when the caddisflies mature and leave the casings behind, they'll use those casings to make earrings or necklaces or other kind of jewelry of that nature. All right. Do the caddisflies mature? Or do they just yank them out? I'm trying to be optimistic. They might just yank them out, but I hope they don't let the caddisflies live. You know, yeah, but they work so hard on that case. Right, they, let them have their fun. They built that mobile home. You know, let them live in it. I want to know how ethical my caddisfly jewelry is. <laughs> it's very important. There's got to be some sort of watch group for that. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Then we come to this last group, uh, which is the most active group. And th- these are the closed cocoon makers. So these guys tend to live without the case for most of their larval stage and are out there kind of roving around looking for things to shred, eat, and digest. You know, we, we talked about the lazy uncles with, you know, with the first group. They're the homeless drifters. Right. These are the crazy nomadic uncles. These are the guys that have been arrested in 10 different states. They've tried multiple different types of psychedelic drugs. They're all over the place. They're not tied down at all. One night in, they're in jail, and the next night they're sleeping on your couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Regardless... This is the group that most closely resembles moths and butterflies in terms of how their life cycle plays out and the nature of their cocoons, because they really only spin silk cocoons when they're metamorphic, when they're metamorphosing much like moths and butterflies do. This actually makes a lot of sense because caddisflies as a group are closely related to moths and butterflies. The silk produced by caddisflies has been found to be chemically similar to that produced by many butterflies and moths when they're making their chrysalises. It's not unreasonable to think of some caddisfly species basically as just like weird aquatic caterpillars. They spend a lot of their time in, in their larval stage in rivers shredding leaves like larval butterflies do. And, you know, they make a, a silk chrysalis underwater and then hatch out into a flying adult. There's a lot of similarities there for sure. Absolutely. And the two orders are closely related. Right, right. It's not surprising. The last thing I want to touch on with caddisflies that is really important is their use as a stream health indicator. So when we talk about how humans view caddisflies and how we might use caddisflies, I mentioned the jewelry. They're also useful for fly fishermen because a lot of trout and things like that will feed on caddisflies. So fly fishermen will keep track of their life cycle and you know, throw different flies depending on the time of year. But I would say the most important thing is their use in evaluating stream health because caddisflies and similar species like, you know, stoneflies and mayflies are really good indicator species because they are really susceptible to pollutants in streams because caddisflies like really clean, nutrient-free water. You know, they're shredding leaves and feeding on the things that are growing on the leaves. So not necessarily used to a lot of nutrient inputs in these environments. So as soon as we start adding things like pollutants or, you know, high levels of nitrogen or phosphorus that are going to really cause a lot of algal growth, it really disrupts their life cycle and disrupts their feeding, you know, routines and what, and their entire ecosystem, really. In a lot of cases, the caddisflies and the stoneflies and the mayflies are the first ones to go. So... If we find a stream that has a lot of caddisflies in in it, it probably means that the stream is in good condition. Because if it wasn't, the caddisflies wouldn't be there. Here's to hoping that caddisflies remain plentiful in streams throughout the world. Fingers crossed. And that's my piece.
Yeah, really cool piece. I I love Kaz flies. I didn't even think about connecting the leaves falling from the trees into the water. Yeah, yeah. I kind of had to think outside the box a little bit for that one. But think outside that, this was your you picked this topic. I did. I did. I just assumed you had something prepared. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I picked the topic, I thought about doing birds, but then I didn't want to do migrating birds again because I already did that, you know, last year. So that kind of led me down a, a whole fall rabbit hole and I decided to go in a really different direction. It's not to say that I couldn't come back to migrating birds because there are a lot of really cool things around bird migration that I didn't get to in that piece, but we'll leave that for another time. There's plenty of birds out there. Absolutely. So with that being said, should our next theme be birds? Maybe let's go with the second pick. <laughs> I'm not a huge bird guy. Yeah, I've kind of picked up on that. I'm not opposed to them. I appreciate a good bird as much as the next guy. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So I did have one idea from last year, and that was lab animals or very important research animals. I could do that. You could do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, like a good model organism. There's a lot of them. I know exactly where I can go with this. All right, well, perfect. All right. So we're doing uh, lab rats. Yeah. Not actual rat, but the concept of. Yeah, this would be really cool. All right. So with that decided, do you want to take us out? If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have an idea for a future episode, you can send it to us at theprimordialsouppod at gmail.com or on X at Pot Podcast. All right. Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.